Okay, well, welcome to Uprise Radio, the second, or the third episode, I should say, for this year. But the first episode with a live James Brennan here, not in the studio today, we're actually speaking from James's kitchen. Oh, you've blown the illusion. (laughs) I thought you were in Hawaii. I may have told our loyal listeners that you were, erroneously, probably the first lie or um, fake news we've ever uttered on Uprise Radio. But where... Where actually were you last episode? Uh, well, I was not with Scott Morrison um, in Hawaii, which you seem to have thought that I was. Mm. Um, well, someone had to be giving him all of that advice about how to deal with the, um, <coughs> the climate emergency. Well, actually, it, um, the uh, ABC show, um, what's it called? The Will Anderson show about that. The ads, Gruen Transfer. The Gruen Transfer. Yeah, great show. Um, it was actually, they employed Russell Howcroft from that show to advise the government on how to deal with the crisis after Hawaii. And so Russell Howcroft came in and advised the Morrison and the government on how to best handle the situation afterwards. Which To go out and force people to shake hands? Yeah, Was that Russell's I, advice? I really do like um, the Gruen transfer. Me too. And I, don't, I mean, I know Russell has had a very successful career, but this would seemingly have to be one of his well, on the evidence we've seen mm. uh, one of the worst examples of his work I would, mm. would have thought what was your feeling watching Morrison's bumbling and seemingly you know without rhyme or reason performance during that time of national crisis um, well I think at that time I was home but um, yeah so not long after that I was in Europe and I think that one thing is really clear whenever you're talking to some someone um, in that period overseas, that people immediately um, were started, you know, saying really sorry about the fires, and uh, you know, just showed how much that news had really travelled around the world. Mm. Usually, you know, you speak to other people from uh, other places, particularly places kind of you know fairly far away in Europe, that people don't really know anything of what's happening in Australia. So. Um, yeah, that was that was really interesting, actually. While I was in Berlin, I went to a protest at the Australian Embassy, which was around the inaction on climate, mm. and that was um, that was organised by the Extinction Rebellion, mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, there was probably amount maybe around three hundred people there, which I thought was you know a pretty good size of people for, I guess in some ways a pretty obscure type of protest to be talking about an issue like that, but, you know, in a country in the outside of the world. It wasn't necessarily, a, you know, direct action type thing, but there were some really uh, moving speeches from some people there that have family in Australia. Uh, and at the same time, actually, there was in Hamburg uh, quite a lot more militant sort of action where people they were stopping people from getting into the building. Mm. And they also targeted Siemens, which is a German company, which is going to be... Um, Teaming up was part of the Adani mine as well. Mm, providing like IT solutions and things for that. Yeah. So it is, it, is, uh, it is interesting that Australia in that period of time has really made the news and, you know, for a, a really negative way. I think that, I guess, reading about things from afar and then the opinion pieces and things uh, since I've been back as well is that, you know, Morrison is really being painted as this bumbling sort of idiot, you know, the worst Prime Minister Australia's ever had, and that's the sort of narrative we're sort of seeing at the moment. 
I just I don't really see that that's going to translate. It's a long time until the next election. That's um, incredibly bad timing in that respect. Like it's quite it's really good timing uh, in the sense of the momentum that was built in the back half of last year off the student strikes for climate and extinction rebellion. You know the the spring rebellion and uh, you know then the, the the catastrophe of the bushfires really. You know I think there's a re- there's clearly a real opportunity now. Uh, to push for some kind of seismic change. And it's been encouraging to see the opening statements of the new leader of the Greens, Adam Bant, you know, mm. he is openly, you know, essentially laid down the gauntlet from the Greens' perspective to uh, big businesses and specifically fossil fuel producers, and mm-hmm. as well as laying the deaths or the future deaths of Australian citizens at the feet of the Morrison government if they don't, you know, come up with a plan for, for seismic action. He's mm. borrowed some language from... Um, you know, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in, in the States, you know, mm-hmm. talking about a Green New Deal, which is also language I think Corbyn was using in the, in the, in the lead-up to the last election. Well, I think the Green New Deal was supported by a number of candidates part of the Democratic um, nomination. I mean, certainly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both um, part of that push as well. Even um, the recent winner of the Iowa caucuses, according to himself, um, not B- winner, but... B- Buttigieg, Buttigieg, I think I say, say, say his Buttigieg. name. Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Mm. Uh, he's, you know, although he, he, he does appear to be the chosen candidate of big money in America, he's received more donations from billionaires than mm. any other Democratic candidate already, though at the same time promising not to take money from super PACs. It's a bit, it's a bit confusing, uh, but there is a lot of support falling in behind him from Wall Street. But even he's spoken about, you know, not without a guarantee of green jobs or anything like that, but talking about the need for... But to come back to Bant... Uh, I thought, you know, one of his... Op- this is a quote from his mm-hmm. opening press conference as leader. He says, Big business that makes its money by killing people and endangering people's safety should be worried. Anyone who makes a profit by putting people's lives at risk should be worried because their days are gone. He goes on, if you're a coal company or a gas company or an oil company, then our message to you is very simple. Your business model is unsustainable. Your business model is predicated on threatening human life. And they have to go. They have to go in a way that looks after workers and looks after communities, but they have to go. So I think... You know, that's a refreshing change from some of the centrism of the Di Natale years, which, you know, promised to lift the Greens' um, electability, but didn't. You know, they actually went backwards under since 2015 in terms of their elected representatives. So it would be interesting to see what a Bant-led Greens will look like. Certainly, I think there'll be closer ties between the Victorian Greens and the New South Wales Greens under under a Bant leadership. So. so I think, you know, what we're wanting to cover in today's show is to have a little bit of chat, I guess, about some of these big sort of leadership issues in the world at the moment and, you know, the Greens, which, you know, we're just about to, or that we are talking about, and um, Scott Morrison, and I guess also talking about the US as well. So I think, um, you know, maybe try, we'll try to break it up a bit, but that's kind of the overarching thing we're talking about today is some of the big political leadership. And I think, you know, what's interesting as well is what... What role do these leaders or potential new leaders have uh, in a push to have an answer to climate change? And I mm. think that's clearly the big issue that uh, is of massive concern to um, millions of people. Mm. And we need it. We need clear leadership and direction with that. It's also interesting here in Australia, um, the nationals, you know, whose constituents, you know, proven time and time again, are most in the firing line in Australia to the changes that, that, you know, unchecked climate change is going to roll out, just seem to be intent on putting their heads in the sands as a party and continuing to 
uh, win political points by slamming anybody who talks about um, significant transition in rural communities, many of which are built around you know large scale agribusiness or you know mining things like that, mm. um, which have direct direct links to climate change. So I wonder whether you know things like the bushfire fires, the ongoing drought you know, is going to create an environment for change within that side of politics as well. Mm. I mean, I have my doubts, but... Well, I think particularly, um, just to go back to that, um, Adam Bant um, as becoming leader of the Greens, I think that in many ways, I think it was a real step backwards to have Richard Di Natale as the leader. And I think that, you know, over the last few years, we've seen, while the Greens are certainly, you know, not at a point of becoming you know, challenging for government at the moment. You know, what we are seeing, though, is the Corbyns and Sanders and, you know, real leadership from the left. And when the, you know, only real left-wing, you know, parliamentary party in Australia shifted to the right, really, and to have someone who, you know, for a lot of the rhetoric that he was talking about and, you know, it's really someone... It sounded like someone from the Labour Party. And it was a real... I think it, the Greens Party went backwards in that time when, at the same time, the, the whole rhetoric and the whole situation around climate change has dramatically shifted. I think that has shifted dramatically even over the past 12 months. And to have a leader like that show you would not get any traction with a leader like that. And I think that, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that the Adam Bant of today is that leader. I think perhaps 10 years ago that he... he he was that voice. I'm not sure if he was the leader, but he certainly, you know, was entrenched into, you know, a Melbourne activist-type scene where he would be at events and be surrounded by people as well who were advising him who had long been a part of the activist movement as well. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. I, I haven't... I think I've barely heard Adam say anything of note for 10 years. I don't... I can't remember the last... You know, unless it's... He's come to speak at something. I'm not sure the connection that he still has with the movement, but I hope that he will be able to play that role because we certainly need that kind of leadership and Mm. it's not coming from the other two major parties and it should be a time where the Greens, for instance, are able to grow their membership and to be able to become a significant force. Yeah, with climate change being, as you say, the number one issue on a lot. I think they did some... um, I think it was the ABC did some kind of... um, data crunching where they said, you know, if Australia was 100 people, that 60 of them would want immediate uh, action mm. on climate change now. You know, there's 60% support for immediate and drastic action. So I do just wonder, you know, what you think, what role this change, you know, what opportunities this change in leadership, considering Bant's opening statements about, you know, he suggested that three times as many deaths uh, will occur in the next uh, fire season if the if business carries on as usual without without drastic change. Um, you know, what opportunities are presented for the, the climate justice movement, you know, here in Melbourne? I mean, we've obviously got a big event coming up on the 22nd of February, uh, which is, you know, hopefully draws a big cross-section of society again and, you know, brings a lot of diverse parties together to... Yeah, what, what's, what do you think the opportunities are for the movement in the next few months? Well, I think one of the big issues has been that even with the inspiration that the student climate strikes have provided, they haven't they don't have a direction. There's no... Uh, they're not influencing big politics, as in, you know, they're not influencing the government or, uh, you know, even outside of that to the Labour Party or it's not really pushing the Greens to take up something to get involved in things. And it's not it's not doing anything outside of that. They're not 
you know, all the different climate uh, actions that are taking, been taking part. They're not confronting businesses. They're not uh, doing these kind of things that enact change. It's not so putting that, pressure where it actually creates pressure. Yeah. As in targeting businesses, you know, where it hurts them. The well, bottom, yeah. Like, shutting even, down the city, thing, thing, things of that nature. Is that what yeah, even if they perhaps have attempted to do some of those things. Mm. It, it hasn't worked at the moment. And I think we're reaching a critical point where, you know, people donated millions and millions of dollars. But I just couldn't help it. That was one thing, that, you know, seeing that overseas. And it was of zero surprise to me when there was a controversy of the fact that uh, that they weren't getting any... that the money wasn't getting to people. As soon as the money started being donated, I just thought, this is going to be a disaster. This is not going to get to people. When Black Saturday happened, there was a lot of money that was donated as well, and it took some of those people a decade to get a cent of that. Mm. And I think that any of these charities have that same issue. And I couldn't help but think, well, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, all of these bands, for instance, well, actually, I um, posted something about this, that, you know, all of these bands that we struggle, have struggled with for 20 years to get anyone of these to do a benefit gig, to do something about climate change or, you know, or any other kind of issue... Everyone, all these venues suddenly got space to do all this kind of stuff. Mm, it's only yeah. after the crisis. I felt the same way about the, the corporate largesse throwing mm. money, you know, after the incident. You mm. know, where is the willingness from corporate Australia? Well, it probably will never be there. Mm. It'll probably be in pie in the sky. But where is the willingness to actually go, you know what, if we invest these millions of dollars each year in, in anticipation of this change or against mm. this change instead of just reacting to it? It's yeah. very frustrating. You well, know, yeah, there's no I, forward, no forethought. I agree with you. Know, it's probably not going to come from corporate sector but certainly from artists and, and different people that have the money as well that you know it, it is going to need a giant shift in that kind of thing and I think that we need a directional shift in the campaigning as well and I think that you know the Greens can play a significant role in that as well that they you know bring lots of people I mean forever it's been a, a difficulty to you know get them to use their um, email um uh, groups that they have or you know all the contacts that they have and to to get people to these events and you know that's the kind of role that they need to be playing as well as you know I think that it, it is still important and significant to be playing that kind of the role that they are within parliament as well mm. and I think that is certainly necessary. It has been frustrating there's a good article on Red Flag published in the last few days just bemoaning both the kind of establishment political groupings not just the greens and the labor party but also the epa and the unions and their inability to get behind protests since the bushfires mm. they also speak about the liberal media such as the guardian who were quite you know pretty negative about people you know tens of thousands of people got out on the streets on january 10th mm-hmm. um you know in the, in the immediate aftermath and they had you know pretty clear demands which i think has been an issue uh, with recent um, climate campaigning as well, but you know they were they were asking for you know immediate action, you know, an increase of funding to um, the fireys, um, and there was one other. See, so clear that I'm remembering them really well. <laughs> uh, anyway, they you know they're essentially saying that you know the EPA actually contacted groups that were involved with the with the strikes on January 10th and said that they would be coming out making public statements against the appropriateness of protests. You know, all this narrative around, like, you you shouldn't politicise a tragedy when the Mm. tragedy is deeply political, Mm. you know, like, and and the causes of the tragedy, you know, the political inaction (coughs) 
you know, is such a factor in, in, in the tragedy. But then you're not, you know, this, this kind of, you know, saying you're not allowed to politicise it in the aftermath, you know, it is really disappointing from these institutions. And I, and I wonder whether, you know, we can, you know, even Dan Andrews, you know, uh, said that the, the protests would be taking valuable police resources mm. away from helping people, you know, instead of, you know, he claims to be the most progressive government in the country, you know, and he can't even, they're always happy to, you know, and this is something the article it's written by um, Louise O'Shea in Red Flag. It says, "Yes, we need to, pro- yes, we need to protest during the bushfires." You know, um, Andrews, yes, essentially, you know, told protesters that they, you know, his 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 emergency services minister, Lisa Neville, called the rally organisers selfish and reckless, uh, but obviously displayed no suspiciousness towards the climate criminals in Canberra. You know, they're happy to call out people on the streets protesting. Always happy to defend people's right to protest. But as soon as that protest is happening in accordance with the anger that people rightly feel about the bushfires, suddenly it's a bit too hot to handle for the mainstream political parties. Well, I think, you know, something that uh, was a bit of analysis done on this kind of uh, rhetoric uh, late last year by some of the journalists in, I think it was the monthly or Saturday paper, we're talking about that actually it's a strategy used by the NRA whenever there's a gun... Um, you know, whenever there's a massacre in the US that they say, you know, someone says, okay, well, we need to talk about uh, gun availability and, you know, restriction or laws and things. And they say, oh, now's not the time to politicize this. There's something has happened. Now is the time for thoughts and prayers. Yeah. And that's exactly, it's not a coincidence. It's exactly that Morrison and his government are following a model that has worked with the NRA before. And I think that's exactly what they're trying to apply to climate uh, issues today is to say anytime something happens they say oh and that's not time to talk about it and then another time no one wants to talk about it because something else is happening mm. and so then it's never the time to actually talk about it mm. and it's just yeah it's a continual way of just pushing things to the side and never kind of dealing with it so final thought you know with this rally coming up on the 22nd of February you know what do you want to see in the aftermath, I have no doubt that after the summer we've had, that we might get close to a hundred thousand people on the streets of Melbourne. But what happens after that? Well, I'll be very surprised if that's the amount of people we get. Um, it will be a pleasant surprise. But I mean, even if we do get mass numbers, we saw that with things like the, you know, the anti-war demonstrations, you know, fifteen years ago, or whatever that. If we don't have a plan of what to do afterwards, if we don't have a, a campaign, is what you can't. I, I mean, you know, the, I, I guess it's just language, but you can't just have a protest or you know a climate movement. The movement means you need a campaign and you need you need strategy and you need a way that's going to move forward. And you know, really, you need multi-pronged um, way to challenge this because it's the biggest issue and you know potential catastrophe that we've ever faced before. And I think it needs, well, I think all campaigns need this, but you need to have, you know, people that are working on things in the parliamentary sense. You need to have direct action. You need to have, you know, have people writing letters, have people boycotting things. It needs to be something that can target all of the, uh, you know, factors, all of the issues, all of the people, all of the companies involved from as many different angles as possible. 
Well, one final comment on the school strikes versus climate. You were saying one of the weaknesses of that movement has been an inability to put political pressure on. And obviously mm -hmm. one of the causes of that is that the majority of participants are not at voting age. But it is a factor that if, you know, if, if there's 60,000 students in the street, most of them are going to be over 16, those that are out on the street, maybe a bit younger. The next, or even if they're over 14, by the time the next election rolls around, many of them will be of voting age. Surely that concerns the incumbent party. I don't think that that's the reason that it... Um hasn't been as effective as it could be because the voting is only a really small part of it. You know, if you think right now, we have an opposition leader in um, Anthony Albanese who said that, you know, that Australia needs to support the coal industry and, you know, he's essentially from the left of the party. So the, Yeah, the so-called socialist left of the Labour Party. The only way that you're going to get the kind of, um, you know, action that we need on climate, I think it doesn't necessarily matter which of the two major parties are in, in government is that the people below demand that. And that's, at the moment, people are not demanding that. And, you know, it's not necessarily... In enough different ways. Because people are demanding Well, not people enough people are, are demanding Not enough it. people. Yeah. And it's not... It has to be to a point of saying, we will not accept anything less than this. And it, and it has to be constant, consistent. Yeah. Not just a week here and there, or yeah. protest here and there. It has to be ongoing. I mean, even if we look at, you know, the, the times where the biggest parliamentary changes happened in Australia and Gough Whitlam... That was not, you know, just as, like, history likes to now portray as, like, Gough Whitlam just riding in on his horse going, I'm going to give this out, I'm going to give that out. Hmm. You know, it was demanded from, a, you know, revolutionary fervour from below. People campaigning for years to say, you. we need to have this. If you don't give us this, then your job is at stake. Hmm. I think that's the kind of response we need. Uh, you're listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR with James and Jackson. I might just play a short song to break up the show. Um, talking about boycotting, though, as we were just a moment ago, we'll come back and have a quick chat about both the Iowa caucuses and also Trump's State of the Union, uh, which was boycotted by quite a few members of the Democratic uh, Congress. Uh, but, yeah, you're listening to 3CR. I'm going to play a track by DMA's band from Sydney. It's called Life is a Game of Changing. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Uprise Radio. You're with Jackson and James. And before we sign out today, we're going to just have a little bit of a quick chat on the Iowa caucus. And this is certainly going to be something that we're going to be looking at, I think, in depth throughout the year. And we'll, we'll get a few guests in through the year to talk about some of the different issues that arise through the campaign. But the Iowa caucus, you know, it's long been, I guess, one of the key caucuses of the um, process of uh, finding a nominee. And I guess, be, you know, it's the first stop in um, the democratic process of the, the Democrats to find their mm. leader. Though the whether it's democratic or not has certainly been a topic for discussion in the lead-up. And after the schmozzle mm. of the uh, digital voting system built by uh, the aptly named Shadow Inc., <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which meant that the uh, the da- you know the delegates who are trying to you know get themselves together and organise themselves into little parties in different town halls all across the mighty state of Iowa were unable to get their votes through to the Iowa Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. There was a whole live a live stream delay, which sent uh, cable news into frothing overdrive as they thought, no, but we got this is a twenty four hour news cycle. It has to be news every minute. We have to give results, and they couldn't. And the fact that they couldn't, you know, Twitter swiftly became full of uh, Sandinistas suggesting party technocrats had deliberately used a flawed app system to deny Sanders the optics of a solid win, which is what a lot of uh, political pundits, both Sanders supporters and weren't, were, were predicting. Uh, I thought I read an interesting article by Tom Skoker at Slate um, who was pointing out that those conspiracy theories you know, about a deliberate obfuscation of uh, the democratic process by the Democratic Party machinery were shared by some notorious right-wing cable hosts and actually distract from the more dangerous and real trend of this digitizing democracy, which is eroding the process. Uh, He wrote, I thought this was worth reading now, he said, For a movement, this is Sanders, dedicated to mobilizing masses of disengaged voters, it's essential to identify the real crisis of faith in the machinery of American democracy. The country is now 20 years into a disastrous techno-political spiral in which the 2000 presidential election disaster led not to a recommitment to proven, verifiable voting methods, which I point out we use here in Australia, like paper ballots, mm-hmm. but to an endless and foolish quest for salvation through better computerization. The result is that each new election occurs as a one-take, high-stakes beta test involving an ever-changing, kludged-together patchwork of various obsolescing or untried technologies largely operated by confused senior citizens, volunteers, to accomplish a task that could easily be done with analogue technology. Well, the whole process of voting in America, you know, really flies in the face of it being a democracy at all. And not, not just what's happened in the Iowa caucus, but, and as mentioned in that article, the 2000 election with George Bush and Al Gore. But... The whole process is flawed. Who's allowed to vote, mm-hmm. uh, when they're allowed to vote, the fact that you need to nominate for, as either a Republican or Democratic you know, member or supporter to even vote in a lot of places, you know, it is completely flawed and shows a lack of real democracy at all. Ties are decided by a coin flip. Mm. But anyway, I think you know, that, that's, all, that's all well and good. And I think one part of that, um, Pete Buttigieg's camp, I think certainly did influence the um, uh, poll results that came out. And interestingly, I was watching last night the, well, yesterday afternoon, um, it was you know midnight US time, that as the results kind of came in, um, Buttigieg just gave a victory speech. Oh, sorry, no, the results hadn't come in, mm. but um, he, was, he he tweeted. He said, "We will be victorious." Yeah. So Buttigieg, I watched. He gave this huge election speech at this rally, as though you know we're doing something um, that is we didn't think it's possible and. But clearly, I think the results, uh, you know, have come in 
sort of today, I think, well, the last count, there was about 65% being voted, and Sanders is a clear winner. And Boudicca may come in second, but that is not winning. And you kind of give a victory speech, and it just shows the kind of arrogance of Boudicca, which I think is too, you know, he would be, he's a, you know, young, brash, you know, um, you know, great, he's gay, and so that's progressive in a sense. But he's also, you know, an Iraq war veteran. He's very pro-military, and it would be, uh, I think he would lose uh, a long way to Donald Trump, and it would be a big step backwards for the Democratic Party. Yeah, he's also backpedaling on those comments that he made just the morning after, saying that he didn't mean that he won by using the phrase victorious, mm-hmm. which is an interesting... Like when um, Donald uh, George Bush had the mission accomplished banner behind him in mm. Iraq. He didn't mean the war was over. No. I'm not sure which mission he was referring to. Of course, the Donald never won to mission opportunity to scorn. His opponents tweeted that the only person that can play, claim a very big victory in Iowa last night is Trump. Of course, using the third person there mm. about himself. But anyway, it's uh, nice it? to be back. We're totally, we're massively out of time. Um, uh, we'll be back in a fortnight's time. Uh, welcome back, James. And Thank you. Goodbye for now. You're Bye. on 3CR.